Hi, Nick Vince here. This week's guest on the Chattering Hour is Darren Len Bowsman, the director of such films as Saw 2, Saw 3, Saw 4, and the latest installment in the Saw franchise, Spiral. Plus, he has another film, Death of Me, recently released. We talk about those and pitching a Hellraiser film with Clive Barker to the Weinstein Company, filming in a haunted house, and much, much more. Up next on the Chattering Hour, Darren Len Bowser. And we're back with our special guest, Darren Len Bowsman. His three Saw films grossed more than $450 million worldwide, and his other films such as Repo the Genetic Opera, St. Agatha, Devil's Carnival, are independent film favourites. He's recently released Death of Me, and the most recent instalment of the Saw franchise, Spiral, will be out later this year. What I want to do is to kind of take you right back to the beginning, if I may. Um, so you were brought, brought up in Overland Park, Kansas. Is that right? Yeah, I was born and raised in Kansas. My, uh, you know, I had the, the, a very traditional upbringing. There was no abuse or uh, BDSM and uh, hidden bodies in our family. It was, I lived in a very suburban neighborhood. Uh, my parents had nine to five jobs. Uh, had a very normal childhood in retrospect for all the crazy stuff that I've gone on and done since. Right, right. So kind of where did your love of cinema come from? Mm, well, it came from a love of October, and I'll explain that. Um, in Kansas City, one of the big uh, one of the big things that was a huge thing for locals was the haunted houses there. Um, when I say haunted houses, it, we're talking extreme uh, elaborate, expensive. Um, they start making them in July. Uh, and you know, you, you would wait in line two to three hours to go in these haunted houses that would like take an hour to get through. Um, and Kansas city became kind of known for them. And we had these things like this thing called the edge of hell. And it was a big summer, uh, a big Halloween event that my dad would let me invite a few friends and we'd go downtown Kansas city and we wait in line. And then at the end of that, all the, all the friends that I invited would come back and we'd do a sleepover and we'd watch movies. And so it became a thing that October, my dad, we'd go to Blockbuster and he would let me go in the horror section. And at that time, for those that remember Blockbuster, uh, you only had video boxes. IMDB wasn't a thing, really. You couldn't you know, Google what these movies were about. You decided if you were going to watch it based on the video boxes. And as a pre-pubescent teen... Um, I, I was always drawn to Elvira, um, this beautiful, you know, uh, macabre goth woman on the cover. And she was kind of my introduction into horror because, um, you know, she she was very sexual and she had very, uh, you know, crude humor. And then she would show these, you know, kind of movies in between her things. Um, so I, I started finding that I loved those movies so much. Um, you know, my friends were out watching sports movies or, you know, things like that. And I would always want to go back to the sci-fi horror fantasy. Uh, and it stemmed from Blockbuster, from getting to go there and never knowing what you were really going to get. There was thousands of movies to pick from. Some were terrible, some were not. 
And it became a tradition with my dad and I that every Saturday we would go to Blockbuster and we would find a movie. And, uh, you know, it was a crapshoot whether it was going to be good or terrible. And, you know, the older I got, you know, even when I was a younger kid, my, my dad really never had restrictions on what I would watch. Um, he kind of let me do whatever it was within reason. Uh, and, you know, I saw a lot of movies probably a little too young to really grasp them. But I remember one in particular, and it, it's not a horror film. It's not a genre film at all. But it, it was the first movie I remember having an impact on me. And that was La Bamba with Lou Diamond Phillips. And I, I think why I didn't know the story of Richie Valens. I didn't know anything like that. Um, so I remember we went to the theater and we saw La Bamba. And um, I remember being disturbed when the plane crash happened. I must have been seven years old, eight years old. And this plane crash happens. And I remember being like, well, they can't kill. They can't kill. He's the main guy. They can't do that. My dad's like, Darren, this is a true story. Um, So I was always affected by movies. Uh, And, um, you know, I kind of dipped my toes in some of the more menacing films a lot younger than I should have, be it Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, Last House on the Left, or even Hellraiser. Uh, I saw them maybe five years too young. (laughs) So they kind of fucked with me a little bit. Wow. Okay. So that is that. That's basically what kicked you off into the, your interest in the genre. Then was yeah. that a that was a very definite okay leaning. Yeah, it was Halloween. It was it was all Halloween. It was that that was my favorite time of year, and those were my favorite types of movies. Um, and I can remember as a kid staying up really late. There was um, I think it was called Freddy's Nightmares, and it was the it was Robert England doing like like his Tales from the Crypt esque thing. Uh, and I, I loved anthologies. I was always a huge fan of anthologies. When my, when I'd go to my grandparents' house for the summer, um, he would let me watch Alfred Hitchcock presents. And I loved those little menacing macabre tales, um, much more than I would like, they would watch hee haw and then they would go watch Alfred Hitchcock presents. And like, I, I, I would roll my eyes at hee haw, but when Alfred Hitchcock presents came in, I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. And, uh, you know, it just, it, it, as I got older, the love grew and it kept, uh, it kept me wanting to make and, and live in those kind of menacing macabre worlds. Wow. Wow. And you went to full sale university to study film? I did. Uh, well, let me try to adjust my computer. I've got a new computer, and so my camera sits like six feet higher than my face is. So I'm 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 in this weird. Hold on one second. I'm just gonna fix this. There we go. This okay. is where you need a DOP, really. Isn't I know. It? I really yeah. I really do. Um, yeah. So I went to college. I started off at Kansas University, which is in uh, Kansas, um, right. and then nothing interested me there. Um, I I was really big into theater. Um, I was a, a big theater oh. nerd. Uh, I was in a bunch of musicals. Uh, I loved music theater. Um, then uh, I went to KU and I, I majored in theater and I minored in film. Um, and neither of the departments of theater or film were great. Um, specifically the film department, I, I was just, no one took me seriously. I couldn't get the time of day from the instructors. Uh, so I, I left KU and I told my parents that I, I wanted to go to film school. And um you know, my grades weren't great. I was not a good academic. Uh, so a traditional film school would not have worked for me. I don't think I ever could have got into a USC or UCLA. Um, but I found this kind of technical-based film school called Full Sail. Um, and it was, a, it was, a, it was a, such a unique experience because the, 
the school was not traditional. It ran seven days a week and it ran on a 12 hour cycle, which means you could have class from midnight on Friday and go to 12 PM on Saturday. So you would, and they ran seven days a week and they were trying to basically get you ready for filmmaking and what it's like in the real world. So it was, um, it was a unique experience. I, I think the course was 16 months, 18 months, but in that 18 months, I went as many hours as I would have if I went to a felt like a traditional, uh, traditional university. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was gonna say, do you have any standout memories of that time? No, you know, full sale, which was great. Was it let me be weird. And I was very definitely weird there. And I got to make weird projects. Uh, you know, you're in a small class. I think my class was maybe 40 people. And we, you follow those 40 people throughout the entire 18 months. You're always with those 40 people. Um, and I was picked to direct the 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter film. And, um, you know, everyone submits ideas. And there are hitmen and there are monsters and there's all this stuff. And I chose music and I wanted to do a musical. So I made a horror musical uh, when it was my first short film called Winter Follies. Um, and it was a short musical rock opera kind of thing. Um, and I remember the school being like, do you really want to make a musical horror? And I was like, absolutely I do. And, uh, so I, I shot winter follies and then, um, about five of my friends from film school all got in a car and we decided oh, before that we, we were going to make a short film that we wanted to be our calling card into LA, something that had nothing to do with the school, something that was wholly unique to us. And we were going to shoot it when we left film school. So we went to Roanoke, Virginia, where one of the producers, Shaw Mason, lived. And um, we shot it in his hometown. Well, you know, horribly enough, the week that we shot it was 9-11. And um, I remember that we were, we were filming a sequence. And on camera, one of the actors, Jay LaRose, who's one of my closest friends, has been in all my movies, we're, we're shooting the sequence and we're at a, a big, a big conference table. And in it, you hear the first AD come running in and say, the tower has fallen. And you see Jay look up on camera and all like the whole, the whole, it's funny because that, that shot actually is still in the short film, but that was, that was our first short film. What happened was we were shooting on 35 millimeter and we could not get film in um, film was uh, you know, they grounded all flights, obviously, so I remember this, this, this very vividly that we were, we had like four days left to, to shoot the film. Um, and we spent, I mean, I want to say a hundred thousand dollars on the short. I mean, back in 2001, that was an extreme amount of money. So, I mean, it's an extreme amount of money now. So I remember Jay and I got in the car and we drove to find film three States away in the middle of the world, basically just spiraling out around us, um, finished the movie uh, and then the five of us all drove to LA with this movie thinking that Hollywood was going to open the doors to us. Cause we had this great short film, which by the way was terrible, but we didn't know that we thought it was great. Uh, and so, yeah, that led me to 2000, late 2001, early 2002 arriving in Los Angeles. Wow. So I'd like to come back in a moment to talk about your first professional job, but what, I mean, kind of that time, who were your greatest genre film director influences or just film director influences? Um, I mean, very definitely Wes Craven. Um, 
You know, I would think that what, what interested me a lot about Wes Craven's career, I mean, I can give you the generic answer of Steven Spielberg or George Lucas or Robert Zemeckis. Um, but I loved people that were taking risks and doing things that were crazy. Um, so I think the first time that I remember, I, I remember the first time a, a director spoke to me, meaning that I was like, holy shit, um, was Julie Taymor. Um, it was a movie called Titus with Anthony Hopkins. And it was a modern retelling of Titus. Um, and I remember sitting in a the theater and I was blown away by what I was looking at because it had such style and panache and it was something I'd never seen before. And I remember leaving the theater and being like, who is this? Who made this movie? Um, that was the first, that was my first filmmakery love was, was Julie Taymor and, uh, her style. But if I go back to the movies or the filmmakers that, that influenced me, I think Wes Craven did because he made a bunch of really, really nasty movies in the seventies. And then he kind of pivoted and started making commercial movies. Um, so he, you know, he did last house on the left or he did the Hills have eyes, but then you look and he pivots and he does something like nightmare on Elm street, which is a much more commercial movie. Um, then he, you know, pivots again and tries his hand at a romantic movie. Uh, so I just was always fascinated by by Wes Craven, um, Darren Aronofsky. I was, a, you know, a huge, huge fan of. Um, I remember seeing Pie, and I, I was so blown away by the style um, of Pie that I actually picked up the phone and found his phone number and called him, uh, and he talked to me for an hour, which was insane. He was actually shooting Requiem for a Dream at that time. Um, but, you know, Terry Gilliam, uh, I loved his insanity and things like Brazil. I love anyone that's just crazy. And when I remember when I saw Brazil the first time, I was so taken aback by the style, the look, the production design, the costumes. Jim Jarmusch, um, another one that just does really weird, crazy stuff. David Lynch, any of those filmmakers that will take risks and do things that not everyone else is doing, I am an absolute fan of. Right, right. So what was your first professional directing gig then? Um, well, so I have a fun story. Uh, it, it would take us six podcasts to go through how this happened, but uh, I bounced around from job to job. I did, I, you know, from being a PA on movies like Van Wilder and the X-Files to being a development associate. Um, but I landed at an agency where I was an assistant and um after being there for a few years, um, I realized that, that, uh, oh, well, wait a minute, before we go to that story, which leads into Saw 2, I'll step back even before that. Um, I worked in the tape room um, of a place called The Firm, and my job was, was to dub videotapes. That was literally what I did. I would dub VHS tapes. So let's say, for example, this is a funny story, which comes full circle. Um, I was working there during Sopranos and Samuel Jackson was a client. Samuel Jackson was on set and wanted to watch Sopranos. So my job was to videotape Sopranos for Sam Jackson, send it to whoever set he was on um, to keep the clients of the firm happy. Um, but I would also like, they represented actors, directors, musicians. Um, so I was a tape room op. After working there for a few years, uh, I started, or a year, I started getting really disillusioned and upset and ballsy. Um, and I, one of my jobs was I sat in the music manager meeting and I had to push play on any of your audio video stuff. So if they had a CD, they wanted to play or a video, I would push play. Um, one evening, uh, I was there and I was broke and I was upset 
and there's 40 execs sitting on a table, all these execs, and they represent Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio and the Dixie Chicks. They're all everybody. And I'm sitting there and um, Jeff Quantinitz, who owns the company, says, okay, how are we doing on the Static X music video? Static X was a heavy metal rock and roll band. And uh, the, the manager raises her hand and says, we actually lost the director. Their album drops next week. We don't think we're going get to get it done in time. And Jeff says, okay, well, then we're going to kill the Static X music video. And I stood up and I said, I'll do it. And everyone in the room turned and looked at me. And Jeff Quantinitz goes, who's this kid? And then my boss at the time goes, he's nobody. He's, he's, he works in the tape room. And then I, and I stood up and I was like, no, I'll do it. And, and Jeff goes, what's your name? And I said, Darren Bowsman. And he goes, Darren, see me in my office after this is over. And everyone was like, oh, he's getting fired. I was going to get fired. So the music manager meetings ends. I think I'm going to get fired. And I walk in there and Jeff said, Jeff Quantinitz goes, so you, you can do this video? And I was like, I own a 35 millimeter camera package. I have a three ton grip truck. I'll do it. I'll do it for free. And then Jeff said, all right, you got yourself a deal. It needs to be on my desk in one week. And he gave me the lead singer, Wayne Static's phone number. Now, fun story. I did not have a 35 millimeter camera package, nor did I have a three ton grip truck. Uh, And so I leave that meeting and I call my parents and I'm like, mom, dad, I need money right now. And uh, they, you know, being the great people they are, sent me some money. And uh, then I called Wayne Static up and I said, hey, I'm doing your music video. I rented a camera, I rented a truck and we shot the video and I put it on the desk of Jeff Quantinance a week later, and it was on Headbangers Ball on MTV a few days later. So that was my first professional real thing that actually was real. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh that's a that's a crazy, you know, that's a, and that, you know, throughout my entire career, that's kind of how it's been. That I've kind of bullshit my way into things until the bullshit became real, including right. Saul, um, where I manipulated and kind of stretched the truth. And then I end up getting hired, and uh, yeah, so it's been a it's been a it's been a wild ride, to say the least. Right, yeah. So coming back to Saw too, this was based on a screenplay you'd written called The Desperate. Is that right? It is. So I um, I was mentioning I was getting I was ping ponging back and forth between a lot of jobs. I ended up starting to write, and um, I always thought I was going to be a writer. I never really intended to be a director. It was always I was going to write. Um, and you know, from, from when I was a little kid on, I've always written short stories and they were always, they were always horror. I was a huge Stephen King fan. I started reading Stephen King at my first book fair at like eight years old. I got the book called, I think it was called eyes of the dragon, the Stephen King movie or book. Um, and, uh, I, I started, uh, I just, I loved these, I loved horror stories. So I started writing horror stories. Um, when I got to LA, I kind of put writing down. I was, you know, I was busy being a PA. Okay. So anyway, I, uh, I, the more I was an assistant, the more I was a PA, the more I found myself walking around with my computer and I would just lose interest. So, you know, I would be on a set for 12 hours and I was literally sitting there doing nothing. I would pull my little computer out and start writing. And that got me fired from a lot of jobs. I got fired from X-Files. I got fired from Van Wilder. I was fired from basically every job that I had because I was always distracted because I always felt like I was destined for something more. Um, and in retrospect, that was really arrogant and cocky, but you know, I, I tell you was that's how I felt. And so um, by the time that I became an assistant at APA, which was an agency, 
I realized that assistants controlled the town. It wasn't really the managers or the producers or the agents. It was assistants because my job as an assistant was to read material and recommend it to the agency. If I thought it was good, I would say strongly consider this script, strongly consider this director or writer. Um, And then, and only then would it get up to the agent or the producer or the manager. So I started reaching out to some of my friends and I said, do me a favor. I've got a script. I want to see if I can set this thing up. And I was like, would you write good coverage on the script? Well, they agreed before my script was done. So we wrote coverage on the desperate before the script was even finished. So I remember that the script coverage went into a database and it was given strongly consider, strongly consider. And once that happened a few times, everyone in town, I don't say everyone, but a lot of managers and agents wanted to read the script called the desperate. I wasn't finished writing it yet. Uh, So I quickly finished the script realizing there was actual interest there. And um, I got a phone call one afternoon from a producer named Mark Berg. Um, and Mark was with Mark Oren Kulis and Greg Hoffman had just completed their first movie called Saw. And they had gotten a hold of the coverage and then eventually the script. And they said, you know, we, we just finished a very small movie called Saw. It has a lot of what the desperate has. It has a, you know, limited locations, major twist, very villainous serial killer. We would like to make your movie the follow-up to Saw as its own movie. It's going to be called The Desperate. And um, we would love to talk to you about selling your script to us. So at that time, no one knew who Twisted Pictures or what Saw was. So it was just a phone call. And I said, yeah, I'll do The Desperate with you guys if I can direct it. And through a course of about a month and a half of back and forth, they agreed to let me direct The Desperate. And it was going to be a $1 million movie, just like Saw was. It was going to be shot, you know, exactly like Saw. In one soundstage, that was it. Around this time, though, Saw had come out in Sundance and become a huge hit. And Lionsgate said, we think this could be a franchise. We want a sequel to Saw. But at that point, there was only a few months until they would have to be in prep to get it out the next year. So they were kind of freaking out. How are we going to get a new Saw script this quickly? And then Oren Kulis, one of the producers of the Saw franchise, said, what if we turn the Desperate into Saw and just changed it up a little bit? So they did that. And at that point, I was not attached to direct Saw. I was only attached to direct the Desperate. But I, again, lied, cheated, and pleaded until I made it true. And I, next thing I knew, I'm you know a 25-year-old kid or 24 on a flight to Toronto to direct Saw 2 after never directing anything professionally in my life uh, outside of a couple of music videos that were mediocre at best. So yeah, the desperate, that's how the desperate became Saw 2. Oh, wow. Wow. So you're on this flight to Canada. What was the shooting like in that case? Um, It was, you know, everything happened so quickly and so rapidly that you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a blur. Um, I remember, I remember showing up to LAX and one of the producers was sitting there waiting for me named Dan Hefner. And Dan Hefner said something like, it was the first time in my life I've ever flown first class. And, and I come in and I'm living in a studio apartment. I maybe have $20 to my name and Dan Hefner sitting there and he's drinking a martini at the, at the airport. And we're in the first class lounge. And he says, Darren, are you ready for your life to change? And I said, let's do it. And he goes, we're boarding. And I remember he finished the martini. We stood up and I followed him onto the plane. 
And I was like, what? I hope I can swear and I apologize if I can't. But I said, holy fuck, what am I doing? They're going to realize I'm a fraud. Um, and, uh, you know, the reality is I'm only as good as the people you surround me with. And they surrounded me with fantastic people, uh, you know, great cinematographers and editors and production designers. And um, somehow it worked and Saw 2 was a hit. And yeah, I, I believe it, you know, it kind of made 44 million more than the first one. Is that right? I don't know. It made a lot. <laughs> <laughs> a big yeah. number. Anyway, it was yeah. certainly. It was a, yeah, it made, it, it, it opened number one. And I remember I got a phone call from Mark Berg on uh, Sunday morning and he goes, congratulations. I can't, you won't understand, but he goes, congratulations. Number one movie in America. You're doing Saw 3. And I was like, oh my God. And so I'm still living in the same studio apartment. Um, you know, now I have like a hundred dollars to my name. I didn't make a lot of money on Saw 2 because, uh, I, I want to say I made scale. And at that point, uh, I might be making this up, but I want to say it was $56,000. And then, you know, 22,000 of that goes to taxes. And I did have a, a lawyer and a manager. So at that point I lose another 20%. So I think I might've had at that moment, $30,000 to my name, 20, 25,000, which, you know, that's what I was, I was making more money at the firm, um, you know, being their music video dude. So uh, he goes, you're going to come back. You're going to do Saw 3. And at that point, I didn't realize how big Saw 2 was. It just didn't hit me because uh, my life didn't change. I was the same, you know, I was in the same scenario as I was. I was eating ramen noodles. I just had a movie under my belt. And then everything kind of changed on Saw 3 because I realized the impact Saw 2 had. I realized that I was helming the second sequel of a franchise uh, that was this huge, you know, potential billion dollar thing that was going to become. Um, so yeah, we went directly into, and when, when, when I did saw three, I did three movies back to back. I did saw three, saw four and repo without really a break. Um, so I left LA uh, and I moved basically to Toronto for three years doing those three movies back to back to back. Wow. Wow. And I never, you know, the thing is I was posting as I was editing Saw 3. No, wrong. When I was editing Saw 4, we were prepping Repo the Genetic Opera. And so it was like I would go from editing straight into the pre-production office on another film. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was crazy. Wow. Wow. And this and kind of Repo the Genetic Opera kind of folds back to your doing music videos and being interested in musicals and doing a rock horror video of film rather whilst you're at um, film school. Yeah. I, I always wanted to make musicals. I, I always loved it. Again, it goes back to my admiration for people like Terry Gilliam um, who basically just does whatever the fuck he wants to do. He doesn't, I mean, he just does it. And I wanted to make a rock opera and I wanted to put Paris Hilton in it. And I wanted to put Sarah Brightman in it. And I wanted it to be the weirdest thing anyone had ever seen. You know, I, I go back to one of my favorite movies of all time is Rocky Horror Picture Show. I love it. Um, and, you know, it was so weird. And it was a what the fuck movie. You watch it and you're like, Tim Curry and like, like hose and bras and brassiers. What am I watching? Uh, and that's what to me makes it special and makes it cool. Is it just the what the fuck factor? So I wanted to make a complete movie that every single person in the audience was like, "What the fuck am I watching?" And I, I think we accomplished that with uh, with Repo. <laughs> I was watching it again yesterday, and um, again, just going over it again today. It really is. And you got Paul Sorvino 
yeah. involved. How did that come about? I forgot how Paul eventually got involved, but you know, Paul is one of my favorite actor stories. We hated each other. Um, I mean, I'm talking despised each other for the first few weeks, and uh, it was it was contentious. And um, I remember maybe four days in, I tried to have him fired and replaced. And I went to the producers and I said, I cannot work with Paul Servino. I, I cannot do it. He's, I don't want him in this movie. I want to recast him. I want to reshoot. And I remember maybe two days after that, Paul went in and tried to quit. He's like, I hate this movie. I want nothing to do with this movie. And uh, it was really bad for the first two weeks. And I remember that there was a, uh, he has this big scene called Gold where he has to, and he's, a, he's an amazing operatic singer. Amazing. And um, we do Gold and I could tell that he was angry. I can tell that he was upset. And it was literally, um, he made me nervous. My butthole would clinch every time I went around him because I was like, he's a scary and timid. First off, he plays, he played so well in Goodfellas and the Mafioso, Dick Tracy, whatever, playing that kind of villain. And he's, a, he's an intimidating guy. So I walked on eggshells around Paul Servino. But we eventually made it through the movie and we started to respect each other. I had a huge amount of respect for him by the very end. And I would like to think he did for me as well. And I remember that when the edit of Repo was done, he was the very first person I called to show it to because I knew he was going to be my toughest critic. Uh, I, I was like, you know, if, if Paul likes the movie, then I know I have something. If he hates it, then I'm fucked. So I, I did a, a separate screening for Paul Servino. It was just Paul. And I hadn't shown it to anyone, not my agents, not my managers, no one. And I remember watching him from the sidelines as he was watching it. And the movie ends and he's just kind of sitting there and it's over. And he's, he's just sitting there and I see him look over to me and I shit you not. He had, he had like his eyes were teary and he stood up and he hugged me and he says, I am sorry. He was like, any movie you ever call me on, I will do. He was like, this is important. And he was like, I don't want to die being known as some mafioso heavyweight. And he was like, there's more to Paul. So he talks about himself in third person. He goes, there's more to Paul Servino than a mafia guy. I'm an operatic singer. I'm a blah, blah, blah. And we ended up becoming best friends after that. Like I ended up for the next three years going out drinking with Paul Servino, going to his house where he made pasta, going to bars with Paul Servino uh, and putting him in three more projects that I did. Um, so, you know, I think that Paul is old school. Like he's an old school guy. And here I come in some, you know, young music video dude who shoots weird, overshoots coverage, does weird shit. And I think it took him aback for a second. Um, and then the next thing I knew, he was one of my favorite people in the entire world and still is. Um, and I'll tell you, there's nothing more surreal than going bar hopping with Paul Servino, which I've done numerous times. <laughs> I can imagine the looks. Yeah, I can imagine the looks. I remember going um, one afternoon or one evening. Um, we were, I forget where we were. We were on the reef. No, we were on the Devil's Carnival. Maybe it was Devil's Carnival, which is another movie that I cast Paul in to play God. Uh, but we were somewhere and it was snowing out and it was like 930 at night. And Paul was like, I'm hungry. Are you hungry? And I was like, yeah, I could eat. And he goes, let's go to this Italian joint I saw around the corner. So we walk in the snow and it's freezing cold and we go there and they closed. It says closed on the door. Paul knocks on the door, <laughs> knock, 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 knock. 
And after a few seconds, his manager comes and sees Paul Servino. And we're not in LA. We're in like Hoboken somewhere. And, and he was like, can we get some pasta? And they open up the door and it was just like Goodfellas. I'm sitting there in an Italian restaurant. No one else is there. And Paul Servino is ordering specialty shit and they're bringing us bottles of wine. And I was like, this guy is my favorite dude in the world. So I love that guy. <laughs> He's extraordinary. And amazing yeah. performances yeah. Um, in the films. You then went on, after Genetic Opera, you went on to do uh, 11, 11, 11, or 666, the yeah. prophecy as it's known over here, which you wrote. So this was your first time to write and direct your own material. So how was yeah, that? That was, um, that, that's a funny story and i encourage anyone who wants to hear a real look behind hollywood to listen to the commentary that was the movie that there's two movies in my career that i look back on i'll I'll only give you this one and tell you this one i won't tell you the other one that i'm like that that if i could remove my name from it i would um and i'll tell you basically it's a cautionary tale i am huge into conspiracies i love conspiracy theories and I was really at that time diving into beliefs and faith and religion. And um, I was struggling with my own bullshit. And I got approached by this amazing producer named Wayne Rice and said, I got a movie. Um, I want to know if you would direct it and maybe oversee a writer. And I said, what is it? And he goes, 11, 11, 11. I said, what's it about? And he goes, I don't know. Figure it out. I just, I just own the title. It's a date. It's coming up next year. Let's make a movie for it. And he knew about this 11, 11 phenomenon. So I, I immediately accept because we were going to Barcelona, which I love. And he goes, we're going to shoot in Barcelona. You can do whatever you want. He goes, there will be no one telling you no, but you only have this much money. And I forget what the budget was, but it was small. And I said, I'm in. It was, it was, I was in. I, had, I could write it. I could direct it. I can do whatever I wanted. I said, I'm in. Um, it was the worst nightmare of my filmmaking career. Um, from numerous aspects of it, from the set being haunted, and I shit you not, there, there, are, there are clips you can you can find online of the the shit that happened to us. To um, I went to a very dark place. I'll give you some examples. So we shot in a house that was on the Mediterranean Sea. The house was we were the first filmmaking crew to be allowed in the house after the murders and deaths in the house, and. Um, the house basically used to be, uh, and I'm going to tell you shit that sounds so unbelievable. And I myself didn't believe it, but it's true. It was a marquee on the house back in the 1900s. The marquee was recently uh, separated from his wife and he had custody of the daughter. After a few weeks of the mother not seeing the daughter, she began to come around being like, where's our daughter? He had this influence and power and he kept her at bay until a few months passed. And he was like, something's wrong. I haven't seen my daughter. Um, after, and this is a lot, hundred years ago. So I don't know how it happened, but eventually authorities were able to go to the house and they found the daughter inside the wall that had been bricked up. Uh, what you found out was that the Marquis's brother accidentally killed the daughter in an accident. I don't know how that happened. Fearing that his name would be tarnished, they decided to try to hide it by putting her body in the wall. So Marquis was arrested, brother was arrested, daughter remained in the wall because they did not want to disturb the remains. So this house sat alone and empty for, for years and years and years and years until a cult bought the, bought the property. And the cult is called Umo. And uh, 
I, I encourage you guys to read about it. It's the most fascinating story in the world. Umo was a cult that kind of originated in Spain. And it, the belief was, is that these, these guys found a doctorate by an alien race. And this alien race basically says, you guys are heading for damnation. Follow these things to, to recorrect all the wrongs that you've done. So long story short, this kind of spread throughout Spain and in Europe, this cult of Umo. And then after a few years, they started doing blood rituals. Then they started doing sacrifices and people started to die at the hands of Umo. And Umo has a very prevalent symbol, which is this weird H. And um, long story short, we go to the house for the first time and the first walkthrough it's weird. There's no furniture, but there's candles everywhere. And there are these H's everywhere. And I don't know what the fuck it is. And I'm like, what are these H's? But no one in the production would touch it. They were like, we don't touch those. We can't disturb them. And uh, that led us into researching Umo and what it was. That house was a hotbed for Umo activity. Now, if you read about Umo, it's crazy. Sacrifices, deaths, ritualistic murders, Then all of a sudden, the two guys that purported that they talked to this alien race comes forward and says, it's all fake. We did this as a goof to show that anyone could create a religion. None of it's real. But at that point, Umo had spread so fast and so far, they couldn't stop it. So even though the cult was fake and completely made up or the belief behind the cult was made up, it had spread so far and so fast. So we are in and shooting in this house that before that was the, 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 the sanctuary of Umo. So much weird, crazy, unexplainable, terrible shit happened when filming that, that I started to lose my mind a little bit. I mean, and it's nothing that I can point out to you right now. And you'll be like, oh, that makes sense. It's small things, but like um, injuries that would occur on set, people getting pushed down the staircase, broken bones, um, hallucinations. Uh, and there's a documentary that you can, I think you can still find it on YouTube where you can see some of the stuff we went through. So I had that going on while we were filming it. And I got too wrapped up in this bullshit, number one. But long story short, we finished the movie. I'm proud of the movie. I think it's good. It's slow. Um, it's very, very slow. I wanted to basically do something that was my version of like uh, those 1970s religious horror films, be it The Omen, Rosemary's Baby. And I finish it and I turn my edit in and my edit is 111 minutes long. It's 111 minutes and 11 seconds long. And um, right when I turn it in, I get offered to go to another movie, The Barons. And I wasn't making any money on 11, 11, 11. I did it for the experience of getting to go to Spain. So I turn my edit in. Um, it gets sold to this company, I think called Big Sky. And uh, I said, guys, listen, I have an opportunity to go make this movie with Stephen Moyer uh, can I leave? And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're totally fine. We have a couple of little changes we want to do to the movie, but we'll keep you involved. And I said, no problem. Like what happens on any film, I became so embroiled in whatever I'm working on. So I'm making the Barons while they're re-editing and retooling. And I don't keep up with what they're doing until they send me the final edit. And I see the email that says final edit. And I decide to sit down and watch it that I've been putting off. When I pushed play, I think the movie is 72 minutes now or something. They cut out 30 minutes. A tear fell down my cheek because it had no bearing to the original movie that I made. It didn't look the same. Uh, it, was, it was faster. It was more cutty. It, it just made no sense to me. And 
I got sad and I went into this depression about that's not me. That's not my movie. I did not. That's, that is not what I made. Um, and it, you know, it was, it was, it was my fault completely because I stepped away from the movie. I shouldn't have done that. I should have turned down the Barons and stayed on that movie. I didn't do it. So I blame no one but myself. Uh, but it's, it's a hard movie for me to sit back and watch because I'm, I can't justify a lot of what happens in it because I never would have done that. And I'm like, oh, that. So it's one of those movies that to me, I learned a lot about myself on, about filmmaking on, about what not to do when you take on a movie. Um, so that's my, it's my experience on 11. Now, now funny story. Um, 11, 11, 11, I probably have made more money on than any of my other movies combined because it did well internationally. It did well, you know, all over because it was released on 11, 11, 11. And since I was a writer and director on it, I made more money in residuals and, and all that than most any other movie I've done. So a movie that I'm the most critical of is probably the one that was the biggest financial hit for me personally. It's yeah. Welcome to Hollywood. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. So, I mean, hopefully a more, enjoyable experience you did you mentioned you'd done the devil's carnival um but also you went on to do saint agatha Mm -hmm. hopefully that was a better experience oh yeah yeah i loved saying it saint agatha is one of my favorite of my movies for for numerous reasons um one of my favorite things about saint agatha is the i got to work with my friends um so one of the things i love about filmmaking is my, my at least my career is that I have been able to work with people that I like and I'm not, no one forces people onto me. So I had just finished um, this very large scale immersive thing, which we can talk about later called the tension experience. And it was a live action um, game that you could take place in Los Angeles that I am, you know, we employed almost a hundred actors and it took place in the real world. Um, I met some of the most incredible talent that I've ever worked with. Um, this girl named Sabrina Kern, who was a recent transplant from uh, Switzerland. She lived in Switzerland. Um, she came to Los Angeles to be an actor. Uh, and I hired her on tension, not realizing that she even had an accent. Her, her English was so amazing, so just fantastic. That, and I was like, where are you from? Are you from LA? She's like, no, I'm from Switzerland. And I'm like, Switzerland? And then she's like, yeah, I just come to LA to, you know, try my hand at acting. I ended up being able to cast her as Agatha, who I basically was the lead of my tension experience. Um, Three or four of the people in that movie, I just finished working with on the tension experience. So they let me bring in my cast. Carolyn Hennessy, who plays Mother Superior, is, is, is one of the meanest villains that I absolutely love in the world. She is so fantastic and getting to work with her and, and, you know, watch her chew the scenery in the most amazing way uh, is just fantastic. So, yeah, I, um, I loved my experience on St. Agatha. Uh, and I think the other thing about St. Agatha, which is exciting to me is, you know, we made that movie on a nickel like that. That movie was made for literally no money. Um, and I think that we were able to do something really clever and cool uh, and again, it furthers my love for uh, it furthers my love for religious horror. I, I think that's my favorite genre is, you know, any movie that deals with religion, damnation, hell, 
so much so a fun a fun fact that I'm you know I was attached to the remake for Hellraiser for years um, that I you know in fact I got to go to Clive's house and sit down with Clive and you know talk about he had an amazing take it, this is a story I don't talk about much but um, Clive and I sat down and we were hired this is back in 2006 maybe 2007 I had a uh, I had just finished saw three or four and I signed a three picture deal with the Weinstein company. And, uh, you know, they, they tried to attach me to a bunch of remakes and those remakes ranged from scanners to children of the corn to Hellraiser. And of all the ones they tried to attach me to Hellraiser was my absolute favorite. I was like, I want to do Hellraiser, but, and I'll only do it if I get the blessing of the creator. I wanted Clive to sign off and say, yes, so they um, set me up with a meeting with, with, with Clive. We sat down. He pitched me what he thought. I was like, I'm in. I'm a thousand percent in. And we went off and he came up with this amazing concept. Um, and then we went back to pitch it to Bob Weinstein, who at that point ran Dimension. And I remember sitting in the room and, and looking, at, looking at this legend of horror pitching this idea. And Bob sat there with his arms crossed, a smug look on his face. And he goes, no, no, no. I want titties. I want shower scenes. I want pinhead in a college. That sells. And then I looked at, I looked at Clive and I realized it was dead. There was no Hellraiser happening anytime soon. So uh, that was the end of my time on, uh, that was the end of my time on Hellraiser. <laughs> right. So uh, I remember he literally said he wanted it set in a college and a sorority and something like that. But uh, so uh, I don't even know how I got into talking about Hellraiser. Oh, my love of my love of uh, religious based horror films. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I have to agree with you. Carolyn Hennessy is just I really saw um, St. Agatha at Fright Fest a, oh, in yeah. London a couple of years ago. I remember just sitting there going. Oh, yeah, she is. Um, I, you know, I think she's in my next movie as well, which I'm really excited about. Um, I have a movie coming up called tension, which is based on my tension experience, which I was supposed to film in April and then it got pushed to July and then it got pushed to October and it's continually pushed again and again and again due to COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she's, she's in that as well. Uh, she is fantastic and one of the greatest villainous characters and funny as well uh, that I've had the pleasure of working with. Right, right, right. Well, we'll come back to tension properly, but I don't want to skip over um, a couple of other things, projects you've been working on. Um, one which did come out recently and that's death of me. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, that was a hard, that was probably the hardest movie that I've ever worked on um for for numerous reasons um you know i I always have a fun story that goes with my films whether it be the haunting which 11 11 11 the story that goes with uh the death of me was i got contacted by these two producers who i'm huge fans of uh david tish and, and lee nelson who run this company called ema and for years we've been looking to try to find a movie to do together And they came to me and said, hey, we've got this movie. It's called Death of Me. Um, The script needs a rewrite, but just just take a read of it. 
So I read the script and it was, it was a voodoo based movie. Um, and I said, I, I dig the premise, but I don't know if we can do voodoo. I've seen it done so many times and, and done well. Um, at the, around that same time, we realized that we were very limited to the locations that we could film in. And when, originally we were going to film it in Hawaii and then Hawaii became too expensive. So we had to go to Thailand. And so if you're doing a movie in Thailand, you can't make it about voodoo. It just, I don't think it would have worked. So we said, how do we make it more unique and centered on the island itself? So a huge rewrite took place. We took voodoo out. We made this own kind of mythological religion up. Um, and we were supposed to go film it. And I was going over to location scout. And uh, so I was The idea was I was going to go location scout. I was going to come back home and then I was going to go back there for good. I never came back home after that first time I went out there. Um, I had a toothache when I, when I, about four days before I was supposed to leave, and I went to see the dentist and I said, you know, I've got my tooth hurt. I took an x-ray and they said, oh, you have an infected root canal. Um, you know, that tooth should probably come out. And I was like, I'm about to go to Thailand. And I was like, I'm sorry. I'm scared about getting my tooth pulled out. I'm about to go to Thailand. And they said, yeah, what we should do is we should give you a um, uh, some antibiotics. And when you get back, we should remove this thing. And I said, okay, totally fine. I get on the flight. I go to Thailand. And uh, I never came back, never got the tooth removed. So when I'm out there, my pain that I have in the side of my mouth is so insane. It is so ridiculous. And I am now on antibiotics and I'm not on antibiotics for one month or two months. I'm on antibiotics for three straight months. In this time of being out there, I got sick and I got a, uh, a parasite. I ended up losing 18 pounds in about five day period of it was coming out both ends. It was, a, it was a horror movie in of itself. While we are filming this movie that is set at the hottest month in all of Thailand, um, which the conditions were so intense because of dengue fever that we would have to dress basically like winter. You'd have to wear a long sleeve shirt, long sleeve pants, long like boots. So it's a hundred and some degrees. I have a tooth infection that I can't even think straight. And I have a parasite, uh, and we shot the movie in like two days. The movie was shot so rapidly. So it was a horrendous experience of shooting the movie um, with, I love the producers on this movie. And I felt so bad because it was such an intense experience. Uh, but yeah, death of me, it was awesome. I mean, I got to go to Thailand and shoot a movie and, you know, Thailand's one of the most beautiful places I've been, but it was, it was intense. Wow. Yes. Oh, God. Um, better Time on Spiral with Chris Rock and Samuel yes. L. Jackson? Loved Spiral. Spiral was, uh, you know, I can't, I, I can't say how great Spiral was. Um, you know, I got a, I was in a, it's such a, a turning point. So I made Death of Me three years ago, uh, almost three years ago. Right. Um, and it, it just took forever for it to come out. Uh, the thing which made Spiral so unique. Um, I was in New York and I was about to move to New York. Um, I got an opportunity to direct a immersive experience uh, on Broadway. And that's like my dream. Uh, and I remember I was sitting in New York. Uh, I had just been given the offer and it was an insane offer. I'm talking, it was insane. They were going to move my family and I to New York. They were giving us a, a suite in Manhattan. It was, it was, it, it was a dream. And 
as I'm leaving the offer, literally just got the offer, my phone rings and it's Mark Berg, who's one of the producers of the Saw franchise. And I was almost done with movie making. Um, I just had a, a couple of bad experiences with distribution and no one seeing the films that I, I, I just become disillusioned. And Mark calls me and goes, where are you? And I said, I'm in New York. And he says, when we be back in LA? And I said, I might be moving here, Mark. And he said, I need you back in LA right now. And I said, I can't, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm here. And he says, Darren, you need to get back on a flight and you get back in LA right now. You need to meet with someone. And I said, and at that point, I don't know if he told me it was, it was Saul yet. Like it was a Saul movie. And I said, who am I meeting with? And he goes, you're meeting with Chris Rock tomorrow. And I was like, excuse me. And he goes, Chris Rock tomorrow. You're meeting with him, Mark, him and Orrin and I, I quickly book a flight to LA and he sends me the script on the, uh, on the plane the script was not called Saul. In fact, it was very not Saul at all. And I read this script and I was like, holy shit, this is great. Like, this is a great script. Um, I land, I quickly shower and I go meet Chris. And uh, I mean, I was kind of starstruck. Like he, he is awesome. And I sit down and, and he, we talk about him coming on to do a Saul-like movie and said, uh, you know, I, I love Saul 2. He goes, I love Saul 3. And he's like, I want to talk to you. And so we talked and at the end of the meeting. He said to Mark and Oren, that's the guy he's directing it. And so uh, about a week later, they got Samuel L. Jackson and uh, I turned down the New York thing and went back into, back into the Saul universe, which was, and it was, it was the, one of the best experiences of my filmmaking career. It could not have been, it was, it was great. Oh, wow. Wow. That is, that, that is good. Yeah. And I like to end this on this high note before we come back to talk a little bit more about tension. So you were talking about this immersive experience. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. So I've, I've had a very unique career and the fact that I've, um, I've gone from directing huge franchises like uh, the Saw franchise to making weird rock operas to leaving and going to Japan and shooting a Japanese TV series um, I've always loved theater. Theater is a passion of mine. Um, but my thing is I want to figure out how to make theater more personal, how to make theater involve the audience. So, you know, the problem for me with movies and a lot of theater is it's passive. You are watching a screen and you're watching flickering images. Um, how do you make it so the audience is critical to the narrative? So we devised this idea of writing a very complex script with multiple scenarios that could happen and tailoring it to each audience member as much as humanly possible. And so the tension experience was the first of these that we did, which was outrageously expensive um, to, to put together. Uh, and we ended up employing over a hundred people, actors, um, and we tailored the experience to you and it took place in the real world. And what I mean by that is um, you, if you signed up for this, you would be screwed with at your own home. We would, we would come to your house. We would uh, come to your place of work and you never knew where the line was of what's real and what is not real. You never knew. Um, And so we told this story. It's a murder mystery that took place over nine months. Uh, Had a few hundred people at that time that were in the, what's called the ARG and the ARG is um, where things would take place at your own environment then once the ARG ended, we opened it up to everyone and the tickets were expensive. They were about $125. 
and you were able to come to the warehouse that we had constructed 25 sets. And it was a three-hour experience um, where you chose your own path. Your actions of who you talked to, who you didn't talk to, led you on your own unique journey. And it, there's no way to really describe it. It, it. it sounds like a haunted house, but it absolutely wasn't. There was no one that jumped out at you. There was no masks. There was no fake blood. It wasn't like that. It was a psychological torture. It's the only thing I can s- to say. Um, and, you know, I knew we had something uh, pretty, pretty early on. Um, we, we basically, very early on, we started filming all the experiences. And at the end of every show, we would see anywhere from five to 10 grown men weeping, just crying and not crying out of fear, uh, not crying out of that because it is so it's emotional. It's an emotional thing. Uh, we then started seeing people buy second and third, fourth tickets to it. And these tickets were not cheap, as I mentioned. So, so you're basically having people, you know, coming again and again and again and again, to this experience. Uh, and we did that. Uh, and then every year since then, we've done another one. Um, most recently, I just completed something called One Day Die, which is an online immersive experience. Um, and what I mean on that, which is which is great, is because you would have to have lived in Los Angeles to be able to see the tension experience. But with this, no, you were able to take place online. And that is, uh, you would sign up. Tickets were, again, like $140. We would send you a box in the mail. You were instructed you cannot open the box until the show begins. Um, you would log on to a Zoom-like site. It was not Zoom, but it's a Zoom-like site. And um, you got to explore seven different rooms, however you wanted to. You could, you could scroll between rooms. It all was live. We had actors, and you interacted with the actors and tried to solve this mystery, but the mystery was contained in the box that you had. And so the box was a puzzle box. Basically, you would open it up, and it was occult memorabilia. But every piece of occult memorabilia had dual purposes. So like an example, you would get a piece of paper, and you would read the paper. But then you would learn if you submerged it in water, for example, it had a hidden message on it. You would find something, if you lit it on fire, this other thing would happen. So it was a very... um, big, dense, sprawling experience that took place completely online. Wow. Yeah. And this, you were doing this this year or last year? Uh, this just happened. We just wrapped it two weeks ago. Perfect yeah. timing yeah. amongst all the chaos. It was. Wow. So that was, uh, that was my last, uh, it was my last year. Wow. Wow. That's extraordinary. Okay. Well, we're almost at the end of our time. Um, and before I let you go, I'd just like to ask you some questions, which I refer to as the luggage in the crypt. Go ahead. Um, so thinking about what you'd take into the crypt with you to for your next life, which film would you take? Of one of my own or someone else's movie? It could be one of your own if you wish, but someone else's. Which, whichever one you'd like to you know, be watching whilst you're in your crypt, basically. Um, well, I'll go through a movie that I revisit again and again and again um, is Rosemary's Baby. Uh, I have two that I watch again and again and again, which I think are the my biggest inspirations as a filmmaker is Eyes Wide Shut and Rosemary's Baby. 
those are two films that just get under my skin and unnerve me. Uh, yet I think the acting is amazing. The production value is amazing. Uh, everything about those movies just work for me. Um, so I think those two movies are, are probably the ones that I will revisit the most. Now, if you want to get kind of kitschy with it, uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show or Jesus Christ Superstar. Those two are hands down my favorite go-to. I'll watch those movies once a week. I'm not even joking. The, that, wow. Funnily enough, yeah. I watched Jesus Christ Superstar recently. And in fact, I think it was chosen by one of my previous guests. I can't remember. Or it was mentioned certainly during one of the previous interviews. It's uh, Well, that's what Jesus Christ Superstar, it holds such a special place for me. It was the movie that made me want to make rock operas. But, and then to be able to work with Ted Neely in uh, The Devil's Carnival 2, and Ted Neely was Jesus and Jesus Christ Superstar, who then brought with him Barry Denon, who Barry Denon played Pontius Pilate in Jesus Christ Superstar. So they were both in my last musical that I directed, which as a, a, you know, it was the highlight of my directing career, getting to work with these two icons of, of not only cinema, but music theater. Just, I, I was a geek. So and by the way, I had Barry Bostwick in my last musical, which Barry Bostwick being Brad in Rocky Horror Picture Show. So that was another just great, great thing. <laughs> Extraordinary cast. What about a book? Ooh. So, you know, it's funny is I probably in the last 20 years have written, read one book, but in the last two months, I've got back into reading and I'm reading insane amounts of stuff. So, um, Okay. That's gonna. My favorite book right now is a is a book by uh, an author named Jim Stein Jim Steinmeier. Uh, it's called The Glorious Deception, and it's a it's a true story of basically the world of magic in the early 1900s. Um, basically, dealing with one particular magician who uh, convinced the world that he was something he was not. He basically played this Chinese conjurer, but it was actually a Westerner. But it's it's it was like Deadwood. If you've ever seen uh, the TV series Deadwood, I know. In, yeah. yeah, it's like Deadwood, but set in the world of magicians and magic. Uh, it's fascinating. It's it's fun. It's educational. Um, I love that book. I also, and that's called The Glorious Deception. I'm also, and this is going to be, I'm also a huge fan of the Lincoln Lawyer series, and I'm actually reading. I've read all of those books. I love courtroom dramas. Uh, so I'm reading the, the, the most current Lincoln Lawyer uh, novel right now. Uh, so I don't know, either a good courtroom drama or uh, a book on magic. And it's funny, you can't see on the side of me. I've started collecting all of these old magic books, like like uh, from like the early, you can see it's like the early 1900s. Oh, wow. Yeah, like old, old magic books. Um, I just love sleight of hand things and I love how to implement sleight of hand in your daily life and in, in cinema as well and movie making, how to actually do things practically as opposed to relying on visual effects. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, yes, I can. Dunning's encyclopedia of magic. I think I still have from the 1960s yeah. somewhere around because yeah. I remember getting this huge, great thing and going, Oh, this is amazing stuff. Um, what about an album? Now you're, I know you're a big music lover. Yeah. Ooh. Well, no, you know, I was gonna say it's hard. It's, it's not hard. It's Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, it's, it is rock and roll. 
Um, and it tells a story and it's a song, it's a, it's an album that I know every single syllable of every single word. And exactly, you know, I'm so much a fan of Jesus Christ Superstar that I can put it on in one room, leave and get a coffee at Starbucks, come back and be singing exactly where they are. Um, and it's comforting. It's a, it's a thing that when I'm depressed or when I'm upset, I can put it on and it makes me feel better. And the same thing with Rocky Horror. Um, and Tommy, in some respects, Tommy as well. Uh, Ken Russell's Tommy is another one of those movies that just blows my mind. Um, but I don't think it would be, I'm not going to come to you and say it's going to be the Beatles White Album or, you know, Janis Joplin or something like, no, it's going to be a rock opera. It's going to be one of those three, probably okay. Jesus Christ Superstar. Okay. Okay. What about a favorite food or drink? Ooh, favorite drink is going to be scotch, 100%. Um, I'm I'm now drinking one of my favorite bottles of scotch that I've ever ever purchased, which is called Octomore uh, 11.1. I'm a huge smoky fan, and it, it feels like you're drinking fire. It tastes like a fireplace. Right. Uh, I love it. Um, so favorite food? I mean... It's either a taco or pizza. I wish I had some refined palate, but I do not. So I I can eat tacos every day of the week and I can eat pizza every day of the week. So you can't see, there's a reason you can't see my gut. I've made sure to frame it outside of my gut because it goes out of my ear. You and me both. Yeah, <laughs> lockdown has not been a friend as far as I'm concerned. Um, what about a piece of visual art? So putting the movies to one side. Oh, yeah, just to- so... Bosch, um, Harmonious Bosch uh, is one of my favorite artists. Um, you know, he's he's an artist that if you look at, I mean, I'll just take one of his, his well-known ones, but like the Garden of Earthly Delights, you stare at that, you stare at that image, and the more you stare at it, the more you see, and the more fucked up it gets. So you look at it, you're like, oh, okay, and then you're like, oh, that guy's being shoved into a blender. <laughs> that that person's being torn apart by the crotch. Uh, you know, I, I love his work because it is so haunting. It is so, I mean, literally the Garden of Earthly Delights could exist in the Hellraiser universe. I mean, there are things in there that, that are, that are pretty, you know, pretty intense. Uh, I think, I think Bosch, I have a book of his, uh, just of his work and you can just stare at it for hours. So if I was looking at a piece of art, it would definitely be, would definitely be that. Right. Yeah. I think I have a beautiful big Tashin book. Um, that's what I have. Yeah. 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 yeah, Just extraordinary, extraordinary stuff. Okay. You you like scotch, but is there any other luxury that you'd like to take with you? Just something to make life a little bit or death. Yeah. I would say coffee because if I had to pick, if I had to pick one vice that I cannot give up, it is coffee. Um, right. I drink coffee from the moment I wake up until the second I go to bed. Um, I can have a triple espresso lying in bed, close my eyes and fall asleep with no problem. Um, I drink coffee so much. Uh, when I'm on set, I do double brews and triple brews, which is, it's going to give me a heart attack at some point. It's you're going to be playing this episode because I've died and had a heart attack. (laughs) But like, I will. I will, uh, like you, you know, you brew it and then after it's brewed, you rebrew it over new grinds and then rebrew it again until you literally have mud. It's just black. Uh, I love coffee. And that's one of my favorite things to do when I go to a new city is seek out their best coffee. So I'm not a fan of going to Starbucks or, you know, coffee bean and tea leaf. I will go find the best small coffee house wherever we are and find that perfect cup of coffee. So if I had to bring a luxury with me, it's coffee. 
Okay. Okay. I've got the aroma of coffee in my head now. Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, I can. Well, no way a crypt is because it's the one that's just got the, the yeah, coffee exactly. steaming out of it. Darren, thank you so much. This has been so much right. fun. Thank you so much for having me on. Okay. We'll take care. And, yeah, um, have a safe rest of 2020 and hopefully 2021 will be a better year. Yeah, absolutely. Take care. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you again to Darren Lynn Bowsman. What a charming and talented man he is. And thank you for joining us. Join me next time on the Chattering Hour. And until then, be safe and well. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Jared Friedrich and Amanda Rome West. Composer Kevin McLeod, copyright Tea Time Productions. Mm-hmm.